0: We return once again to our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians. And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is the second and last part of a series on the virtues of love. We will be looking at verses 4 through 7, if you will turn there with me. It's always important that we keep the context in mind of what the Spirit of God has to say through his apostle. You will remember that having established this church on his second missionary journey, Paul was like a a loving and a protective father, deeply concerned over their spiritual growth and their testimony amongst the world. He knows that a loveless church is a powerless church. He knows that a man-exalted church will be one where Christ is abased. And unfortunately, the DNA of the Corinthian church was one of selfishness and self-promotion. It was marked by conflict and chaos, jealousy and strife, their lack of Christian love for one another, had turned their worship services into what really could be characterized as a chaotic talent show where everyone was trying to show off their spiritual gifts, try to outdo each other, especially using a phony version of the gift of tongues. And Paul's corrective letters revealed their worldliness, their pride, their selfishness their censorship of others who didn't see things their way. I mean, they were taking one another to court. Can you imagine that? Those that were wealthy wouldn't share their food with the poor, those that they considered beneath them when they came to their love feast. So in chapter 13, Paul stops his corrective exhortations and contrasts Their selfishness with agape love, that self-sacrificing and affectionate disposition that seeks the good of others regardless of merit, and with no demand that a person reciprocate, that unconditional love, that unmerited love, and as we have learned thus far, this is a spirit-empowered compassion that will do all that it can to seek the welfare of others over self, even the welfare of an enemy. So in order to show them, quote, a more excellent way than earnestly desiring the greater gifts, as he said in verse 31 of chapter 12, he describes, first of all, the value of love. You will remember that. A few weeks ago, in verses 1 through 3, let me read that for you. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am Nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then last week we examined, secondly, some of the virtues of love in verses 4 and following. This is what love does and does not do. You will recall he says love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. And that's where we ended the last time. So now we're going to pick this up in verse 5. And as we do so, I pray that the light of God's standard will shine brightly on all of us and expose those areas where we are deficient in love. And if you're like me, you will find yourself convicted in many ways. Verse 5. He goes on to say. Love does not act unbecomingly. It means it does not act rudely. Or in bad manners. The verb ashkamoneo means. In the, in the original language. It, it means what is not according to proper form. Um, it, it, it has the word schema in it. Um, this is a person who disregards the, the scheme of, of local customs, social customs that have been adopted, which, of course, can vary from culture to culture. And we know, as we've studied thus far, and we know from personal experience, that when pride puffs up the heart, we can become overbearing. We can become condescending. We can become an obnoxious windbag, if you will. We can be domineering and crude and rude and inconsiderate of others and become that jerk that no one likes to be around. He's saying love does not act that way. And unfortunately, this was more the rule than the exception in the church at Corinth. They took rudeness to new heights, again, at their love feasts. They were so rude that when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, according to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-one, 21, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Can you imagine that? Unbelievable. Yet I might say that we see variations of this even here. At Calvary Bible Church, this is the teenager who sprints to the family life center to be first in line at the buffet table after church and loads up their plate with all of the chicken with no thought that anybody else is going to be behind them. Love does not act that way. This is the person who goofs off during church and distracts other people during the worship service. This is the Calvinist that tries to cram a tulip down the throat of every unsuspecting Arminian. This is the soul winner who loves to make a scene in public. This can be the person who dominates conversations by talking about themselves nonstop. This is the aggressive Christian polemicist that uses contentious rhetoric to somehow attack their opponent. Love does not act this way, Paul says. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 32, we read, Give no offense, he says, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Beloved, rude, self-righteous, discourteous, bad-mannered behavior will ruin your reputation and turn you into a Bible-toting skunk. And we all know what a skunk is, right? What happens when you see the skunk coming your way? Everybody moves away. But when love rules our heart, we are going to be gracious. We're going to be courteous and polite and winsome. In fact, our our face will literally be a sermon in and of itself. So he begins by this section by saying, love does not act unbecomingly. And then he adds to this, he says, it does not seek its own. In other words, love is not selfish. It's not preoccupied with self. Love does not insist upon its rights, if I can put it that way. And how rare it is to find this kind of a person. That's not insisting upon their rights, especially in this politically correct environment where everybody is offended over just about everything. And if they're not, they're looking for some way to be offended. I've observed how many people, even Christians, are kind of like toddlers that never grow up. They get an adult body but they're still demanding and controlling and wanting to be the center of attention. And that's what was going on in Corinth, especially with this whole showy gift thing. And we've all seen child-centered homes where little four-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte rules the entire family. Or a home that orbits around the gravitational force of 13-year-old Donna the prima donna And sadly, these kids can grow up physically, but not spiritually. And then they bring that behavior into the church. I've witnessed this over the years in the church. People become complainers and whiners, my way or the highway. They're always picking fights, always criticizing. They think the church that is there to somehow meet their needs and and satisfy their expectations and cater to their preferences. Paul is saying, love does not do that. Love does not seek its own. How many times I've seen people even in this church that are like Diotrephes. Remember that guy, 3 John? and I'm sure none of you name your kid Diotrephes. And for good reason. He was the one who loved to be first among the brethren. And falsely accused people with wicked words and so forth. So Paul is saying, love does not seek its own put it a different way, love seeks to care for and to serve others. Think of what Jesus said. He said, I I did not come to be served, but to serve. That's what love does. Philippians 2 and verse 4, Paul says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Dear friends, never forget that unbelievers are watching you. And they are watching you with a suspicious eye. They're looking for the slightest little slip up so they can say, aha, see, another one of those hypocrites and thus justify their rejection of the truth. And one of the most powerful ways to prove to a fallen world the power, the transforming power of the gospel is for the world to see how we love one another in the body of Christ. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love does not seek its own. He goes on to say, love is not provoked. I like the Phillips translation. It's not touchy. My mind sometimes goes in places maybe it shouldn't, but somehow I remember an Andy of Mayberry show where Andy told Barney that you're touchy. I'm not touchy! And you all get the idea. We can all be touchy, right? It comes from a Greek term, paroxysm, and we get our English word paroxysm from that. It it, refers to a convulsion or a sudden outburst of anger. We don't use the word very often. But in this context, Paul is saying love does not give way to outbursts of anger. That's the idea when personally offended. Now, this is not referring to righteous indignation. There is a place for that. We are to respond in anger towards those things that are offensive to a holy God. We are to respond in anger towards things like heresy and immorality and violence, idolatry, even the misuse of spiritual gifts. Love cannot rejoice in unrighteousness, as he's going to go on to say in verse 6. But what Paul is referring to here is being easily offended and then exploding in anger. When something doesn't go your way personally. And this is what happens when those who seek their own way don't get their own way. And then suddenly they have an outburst of rage or a temper tantrum. To put it a little bit differently, this is that self-centered person that is therefore easily offended and has an emotional meltdown over some offense. Either real or many times imaginary. Upon numerous occasions I've witnessed this. I'm sure you have as well. I I think of a number of times, especially with women in the church, where I've I've had them just have a meltdown and they start sobbing and screaming at me, or Nancy and me together. I can think of a number of situations and and I, I, I can think of situations where it's so loud, I just have to hold my phone out like this and wait for them to calm down. Paul's saying love doesn't do that. And, of course, it's futile to reason with a person that's out of control like that, a person that's selfish. And, you, you know, you, you all you can do is respond forthrightly and kindly, hopefully, when they die down. And for me, sorry, it's hard for me to keep a straight face when that is happening if you've ever been around that, I mean, the poor person is making a fool out of themselves, but they don't real, realize it. But you want to feel sorry for them, and you certainly feel sorry for their, their spouse or their kids, because you know that type of thing is happening behind the scenes. Of course, men can do this as well, and, and we've, we've all seen this. But the point is, this was going on at Corinth. That's why it was an issue. But Paul says love is not provoked. In other words, it's not quick-tempered. It does not allow itself to be roused to resentment and retaliation. Because, because again, dear friends, love is that spirit-empowered disposition of the heart that is virtually immune to that type of outburst of, of anger. Remember, love is a fruit of the spirit And so the knee-jerk response to an offense for someone who's walking by the Spirit is not going to be an outburst of anger, but it's going to be a much more reasoned, kind, and patient response. And how, how sad to hear, as I do from time to time, of a father or a husband or a wife and a mother respond in such a way. Of course, I've heard it so many times, something like this. Well, yes, I have a tendency to fly off at the handle at times, and that's just my personality. I mean, my dad was that way, or my mom was that way, or I'm Irish, or whatever. You know, you hear all of these types of things. And my answer is, in a very hopefully loving way, wrong. The real issue is you're selfish and you're demanding, and love is not ruling your heart. Because if it were, you wouldn't have those kinds of outbursts of anger. Well, yes, I've got a short fuse, but it only lasts for a second. Well, so does a stick of dynamite. But think of the damage that it does. And we all know the type of damage that that can do in a home, in a marriage. I've seen marriages and families absolutely decimated over people with short fuses. Folks, if, if this is you, may, may I ask you to, to look often to Christ. He is our supreme example. And even meditate upon Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21 and following. And ask the Spirit to help you to change. Peter said, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin." nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So he says, love is not provoked. He goes on to say, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Take into account uh, comes from a Greek verb, uh, legizomai. And it was really an accountant's word. It's it's rather interesting that that Paul would use this term and very appropriate. It it was used of, of bookkeepers that would enter figures into a ledger. We all understand that. And so the idea here is that love does not keep a record of wrongs. That's the point. It does not keep track of offenses made against us. Now, it's interesting. The same term is used to describe the pardoning act of God on sinners who trust in him. In Romans 4, 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Magnificent verse. Because Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, we have been acquitted. acquitted. We have been pardoned. His blood has washed all of that away. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, we see the term used again. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And what an amazing thought. When God looks at the ledger of our life, he only sees the entry righteous. We are counted as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to our account. But, ah, we are different, are we not? Oh, yeah. On the other hand, we are prone to keeping an account, keeping track of how others have sinned against us, real or imaginary. I've witnessed this many times in counseling sessions over the years. Or when someone calls me and says, hey, pastor, can, can we talk? You know how when dump trucks back up, you hear beep, beep, beep. Many times that's what I hear when somebody says, Pastor, can we talk? Or when they get ready to tell what's going on in their life, you hear the dump truck backing up, and they're getting ready to dump for two hours their record of wrongs. They open up their little black book. Or maybe their big black book, their record of wrongs. Or you might say their illustrated scrapbook because, oh, they, it's vivid. I mean, they, and it may have been things that happened years ago, but they've never forgotten. They can give you a detailed accounting of who, what, where, when, how, why they were offended. And it's obvious that they can't wait to share it with somebody. I've seen it before where both the husbands or the wife, depending upon which one is sitting, will sit there. And once the, once the spouse begins to dump the truck, you'll see the other one go, oh, boy, here we go again. Because they've heard it all so many times. Recently, an offended church leader from another church um, wanted to talk with me. And he unloaded his truck for about two hours. It, it, it was really it was really sad and we, we had a, we ended up having a wonderful conversation, but I remember him saying, Dave, thanks. I, I really I really needed that. I, I needed to get that off my chest. And I said, Well brother, yeah, there's been some difficulties, but may I first say that what you really need to do is learn how to love. Because love doesn't take into account records of wrongs like you've just listed. Record of wrongs that went back 15, 20 years. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Look how this has been eating at you all of these years. Yes, but so-and-so did such-and-such, and, 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 and how am I supposed to respond? Am I, am I supposed to just blow it off? Oh, no, 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 no. No, you don't want to do that. What you need to do is you need to write it all down. You need to stew over it. You need to let it ferment into a poisonous cauldron of resentment and eat a hole in your stomach. That's what you need to do. Whatever you do, don't forgive, don't forget. What you need to do is resent and remember. You need to keep ripping the scab off of that offense so that it never heals. That's what you need to do. You need to keep it alive. He got the point. Folks, isn't that what we do? We're offended and we remember it and every chance we get, we think about it, we dwell on it, we tell others about it, every detail. Obviously, that's the opposite of love. As I was meditating upon this, I remember a number of years ago, rage therapy was all the rage here in Nashville. Maybe you've heard about that. It's part of anger management therapy, supposedly. And uh, what would happen is you would go into a rage room, all right, and they'd have this big roll of paper, and you would pull the paper down. It was about, I'd say, seven feet high. You'd pull the paper down, and they had some things you you would put on the floor. I remember seeing one. And then you would draw a silhouette of the person you were mad at. And the, the one that I witnessed, it was a woman who was, who was furious with her husband. So she kind of drew the, the husband. I remember she had horns on his head. You know, surprise, surprise. And then what you're supposed to do is write down just little, little bullet points of all the ways he's offended. And you, you could see people they just, just fill it up. There's the record of wrongs. And then what they would do is they would have the stack of plates... And they'd get back about 10 feet and start hurling those plates at the person, screaming at them, cursing at them. Love doesn't do that. Yes, you can be offended, but that's not how you handle it. What do you do? Well, you may lovingly confront, you may have to set up some boundaries, seek godly counsel, but... Never keep a record of wrongs, and you know, folks. I have to tell you, I, I can preach this better than I can live it. I know how hard this is, and I know over the years, for example, as a pastor, how hard it, it, it especially early on, because I mean, somebody's constantly upset with you as a pastor, or if you're a Sunday school to anybody in leadership, it's just going to be that way. Are you people who oh, maybe have you know? people under you that you're supervising or whatever and many times people are upset with you and you don't even know it or you you kinda wonder maybe you wonder what you've done and then when you hear it you have to appeal to your conscience and if you say my goodness that's that right I really need to ask for forgiveness we need to be reconciled Then you do that but you know if it's some bizarre off the wall slanderous deception you know Your conscience says, well, there's no merit to that. And so what do you do? Do you keep a record of wrongs? No. You blow it off. You forget it. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans twelve eighteen Romans 14, verse 19. Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That's what you want to do. And half the time, those things can get resolved. And the other half, they're never going to get resolved. It's just how it's going to be. And I've learned that you have to consider the source. Many times people are, are immature. They're worldly. They're ruled by their flesh. Moreover, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. You have to take all of those things into example or, or into consideration. And all of those examples of those things, you're you're very aware of. I don't need to give those to you. And then you have to say, Lord, I'm just going to let you deal with these things. But I'm just not going to keep that record of wrongs and keep pulling out the scrapbook and looking at it and talking about it. So I'm going to acknowledge before the Lord that, that my sin is far greater than the charges they've made against me. I need to realize that, and yet I'm forgiven. He's removed my sins as far as the East is from the West. Aren't you thankful for that? He chooses to remember them no more. So who am I to keep a record of wrongs? Who am I to keep an offense alive? Who am I not to forgive and forget and just move on? Practically speaking, after you've done all you can... And, you, and maybe you can't be reconciled or whatever. You, you just have to blow it off. And it's at that point, as I say, the bigger issue for me is what's for supper? You know, if you don't deal with things that way, you're, you're, it's just going to eat you up. I, I just refuse to, to allow another person's wickedness to eat at me like a cancer. You see, I believe what Paul is saying here is we have to have a selective memory. I mean, your, your survival is going to depend upon it. And, and you, you want to remember those things you should, but those offenses, all that garbage that's out there, you just have to get rid of it. Practically speaking, I get rid of the letters, I delete the emails, I delete the voicemails. Just move on. I let my mind set on... Things above, the scriptures say it's a man's glory to overlook a transgression, and the spirit of God helps you to forget about it. I I, I think of Philippians 4:8. You you've got to focus on on whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, not how you've been offended. The things you have learned, Paul says, and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Beloved, if you're keeping a record of wrongs, you're living in sin and God will not bless you. Let me put it just as bluntly as I know how. He will not bless you. And you know if you're doing that because you're walking around pouting. You're kind of whining. You're looking for an opportunity to say something bad about that person that did that to you. You won't have anything to do with them anymore. And you're rehearsing in your mind all the time those things that you'd like to say if you just had an opportunity. Folks, love doesn't act that way. Savages act that way when they take scalps. Barbarians act that way when they take the heads of those that they have defeated and put them on poles. So that they can keep their hatred alive. And folks, if if you're keeping a record of wrongs, don't kid yourself. You're deficient in Christian love, and you need to deal with that with all of your heart because your heart is growing in resentment, and God's simply not going to bless that. So you need to sell your dump truck, okay? Get rid of that thing. Get rid of the record of wrongs, get rid of the scrapbook of offenses. Ephesians 4:32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Folks, the more you brood over offenses, the harder it's going to be to forget them. And frankly, if you never allow them on your chest, you're never going to have to worry about getting them off your chest. I like the way the early church father Chrysostom said, Said it. He said, quote, a, a wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. Isn't that beautiful? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. He goes on in verse 6 and says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In other words, it finds no pleasure in evil doing, if we can put it that way. It finds no satisfaction in sin. And we all know that it's part of our depravity to naturally be drawn to evil. We drift towards wickedness, never towards holiness. Bad news sells, right? And the more salacious, the more immoral, the more violent, the more slanderous, the better. I mean, consider the lurid, vulgar sensationalism of the tabloid Newspapers on the checkout line at the grocery, you know right there where you check out there. It is You see all the pictures and -and so-and-so has done this horrible thing or whatever And of course that caters to people ungodly people who rejoice in unrighteousness People that do not have this kind of love consider television programs and movies that glorify evil I was thinking about this just last week. Millions of people feed upon things like like soap operas and sitcoms and, and reality shows that flaunt every conceivable kind of immorality. Love doesn't rejoice in that type of thing, that unrighteousness. Let me give you some examples to make it real clear. The Jerry Springer show. The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I've never seen these shows, but I've seen enough of the commercials to know what it's all about. An obsession with the walking dead, with vampires, with horror shows that exalt Satan and his kingdom of darkness. I mean, folks, really? Love does not rejoice in that kind of unrighteousness. I looked up. Found that Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad are the two top TV series of all times. I, I've, I've never seen any of these, so I looked up the parent guide to find out, you know, what's going on. Game of Thrones is filled with, and I just jotted down a few of them, explicit sex, situations of rape, incest, along with violence, torture, and gore. Prolonged scenes of battles against monsters and dragons. Extremely dark and demonic, very unsettling. I mean, who would want to watch something like that that calls himself a Christian? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. I looked up Breaking Bad. Again, I've, I've seen some commercials on this. I found that it's a chemistry teacher diagnosed with stage 3 cancer who lives with his wife and teenage, teenage son who has cerebral palsy, and he embarks on a career of drugs and crime to ensure his family's future. Boy, I really want to watch that one. That's going to honor Christ. Folks, love simply finds no pleasure these kinds of things, and if I can be as loving and as kind and as pastoral as I know to be, if you are a believer and you feed on these kinds of things let me tell you what I know about your private life you have no personal pursuit of holiness in your life you have no burden for the lost, you have no appetite for the word of God, you have no longing in your heart For the glory and greatness of God. You have no desire. To become more like Christ. And for Christ. To be seen in your life. You have no longing. To see Christ face to face. Because you're consumed by an idol. The idol of self. And you do not love. The way we are to love. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, Isaiah 5.20. As I read earlier in 1 John 3.9, no one who is born of God practices sin. I mean, folks, seriously. If if, if these types of things are are, are the types of things that, that you can't live without, that you can't wait to see, You really need to seriously question if you've ever truly been born again. And the other thing that happens, even as believers, is as we watch these things, God's standard of righteousness is gradually diminished and the conscience will only hold us to the highest standard. And when the standard is basically gone, you really have no conscience and you can do just about anything and it doesn't bother you. And that's what we see in our world today. I mean, just think of our country. It has descended into an abyss of depravity. Look no further even than the, the chasm of compromise in the evangelical church. Many churches are nothing more than, than, than country clubs. And many others are, are becoming an extension of the Democratic Party promoting all manner of immorality and socialism and the aberrant social justice gospel. I was reading the other day, a Wheaton College professor suggests that the Bible is mistranslated because there weren't enough black translators. Calvin College, located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, boasts of their inclusivity and progressivism by having, quote, a peer education group of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, plus LGBT plus, whatever that means, and straight students who support each other and educate the campus, end quote. Went on to say, including a yearly event, Event Including LGBT workshops in the dorms. And offering, get this, gender inclusive restrooms. Dear Christian, you can measure your love for Christ by the things that you love in your heart. And by the things that you will allow yourself to take pleasure in. And if you take pleasure in unrighteousness long enough, you will have no standard. And anything will go. And you will become an idolater. And those idols will destroy you. So guard your heart. Starve your flesh. Never feed it. Avoid keeping company with evil people. Choose your friends wisely. You young people, choose your friends wisely. And even more important, choose the person that you're going to consider marrying even more wisely. First Corinthians 5 11 Paul says I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler swindler not even to eat with such a one. Second Thessalonians 3 6 now we command you brethren Paul says. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. I might also add that rejoicing in unrighteousness is what fuels gossip, isn't it? Too often we secretly delight in the sins of others and their failings, their weaknesses. We Can't wait to spread the news. Get on the phone. Get an email. Get a Facebook post. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? We're all ears to hear the latest gossip and to savor the juicy tidbits of failure. Folks, that's not love. Love finds no pleasure in evil doing. Well, moving along here, Paul says as well in verse 6 that love rejoices with the truth. Now, here he, he gives a, a, a very positive remark in stark contrast to the previous negative. It rejoices with the truth. Truth here is a reference to God's truth, to right doctrine, to biblical truth, to the truth that is revealed in, in who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus said, I am the truth, John fourteen six. Love rejoices in the truth of, of who God is and the truth of the gospel and, and in the truth of how it is proclaimed in the lives of God's people that others will see and will come to saving faith in Christ. Second John verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. There it is. Love rejoices with the truth. So, folks, the contrary is therefore true. Anything that is contrary to the truth, anything that attacks the truth, anything that mocks the truth, anything that distorts it or waters it down, should bring righteous indignation, but it should never bring rejoicing. Because it is unrighteous. You know, I've been in churches where the word of God is so dishonored, through false teaching or incomplete teaching, which in many ways is just as bad. Sometimes listening to those kinds of sermons is, is just torture. And, you know, again, it's, often it's not so much what is preached that's the problem, but what is not preached. I, I remember when the Purpose Driven Life book came out, one of the all-time bestsellers. I remember when I read that, I thought, oh, my, what a clever deception this is. There's not a single sentence in the entire book that explains the gospel. There's nothing in it that explains the depravity of man and man's alienation from a holy God. Nothing that explains the atoning work of Christ, the reason Christ had to die on the cross. Nothing about the purpose of the cross and the empty tomb. The book is basically about man having a great need and that is a lack of purpose In one place it says quote real life begins by committing yourself completely to jesus christ well you know that's true but my goodness what about the rest of it committing to what who is christ you see they never tell how to do that biblically and then after you say i believe in you and receive you they say welcome to the family of god are you kidding me You see, love does not rejoice in that type of thing because love rejoices in the truth. By the way, man's greatest purpose is not a lack of purpose. It is his sin. And it's because of his sin that the wrath of God abides upon him. And unless he deals with his sin by crying out for the mercy that God provides through faith in his Son, the only sacrifice for sin, that person will die in his sins. You show me a church where the diet is cotton candy sermonettes for Christianettes, and I will show you a congregation of spiritual toddlers who know nothing of rejoicing in the truth and who will rejoice in unrighteousness. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth to the Father before he went to the cross, John seventeen seventeen. Set them apart in the truth. Thy word is truth. We have to love the truth. That's how people are saved. So how, having exposed how love is incompatible now with jealousy and bragging, arrogance, bad manners, selfishness, anger, resentment, and unrighteousness, he concludes now by using hyperbole, to extol those aspects of love that are pleasing to God. And what's interesting is four times he is going to use the phrase all things, which conveys the the unlimited capacity and responsibility of love. Notice what he says in verse 7. Love bears all things. Now, something technical here, but it's important. Paul uses for the word bear here, he uses a Greek verb, stego, um, and it means to cover up. And this can therefore carry the idea of concealing or throwing a mantle over the faults and injuries imposed by another person. Now, Paul uses this verb elsewhere in a little different way in the sense of patiently enduring or or Bearing and silence, for example, 1 Corinthians 9, 12, we endure, there's the same word, we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. However, I believe that that concept, that kind of enduring, that that word can mean, is stated very clearly at the end of verse 7, as we're going to see. So I believe here Paul is using the term to express how love protects from exposure, from ridicule, from harm. True love is going to cover up weaknesses and sin, like we would do if our own child were the subject. Does that make sense to you? If your child has done something wrong, you want to, without lying, cover it up, rather than make it even worse. So you throw a mantle of grace over a fault or an injury rather than showcasing them. Spurgeon put it this way. It never proclaims the errors of others. It refuses to see faults unless it may kindly help in their removal. It stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on its lips. You see, folks, love will cover up sin. Sin even as the blood of the covenant that was sprinkled on the mercy seat as a covering that prefigured the the perfect and final covering of the shed blood of Christ. So to say it a little bit differently, love does not gloat over the faults or weaknesses of another person. It does not exploit, it does not gossip, it does not condemn. We all know how easy it is to hear some kind of an accusation or even to personally experience some kind of an injury and all of a sudden we get all huffy and we get all defensive and we decide all the things that we're going to say if we have an opportunity to do it. We go into attack mode and we say, vengeance is mine, saith myself. And we jerk the sword of divine vengeance out of God's hands. And we say, thank you, God, I'll handle this. Love doesn't do that. You see, folks, love's desire is to gently restore and to tenderly encourage. Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Peter said, in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers what? A multitude of sins. Paul goes on to say, love believes all things. In other words, it believes the best. It never assumes the worst. Love will be quick to interpret a fault or an injury with the most gracious explanation possible. Love is quick to trust. Love is slow to doubt. Love guards against suspicion. Love is going to take a person's word for something as long as it can. So love is going to leave no room for cynicism. It's going to give no quarter to contemptuous scorn. After all, it's already committed itself to to bearing all things and throwing a covering, a mantle of grace over a blunder or a grievance. I mean, think about it. Love will take God at his word without misgivings. And likewise, love will take others at their word without misgivings. People are to be considered innocent until proven guilty, not vice versa. And so, love's first reaction to a failure is one of restoration, never humiliation or retaliation. Galatians 6 and verse 1 Brethren, if any man's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Restore comes from a Greek word, katartidzo, it was used to describe the setting of a broken bone. How do you set a broken bone? Well, you just grab a hold of it and you just start jerking. No, you very carefully and tenderly come along and you help set the bone. That's what we're to do. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. He goes on to say, we are to bear one another's burdens. And the whole context here is you're supposed to get underneath them with their burden of sin and try to help them carry it. Try to bring them to a place of genuine repentance And he says, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? That we love one another. So he says, love believes all things. He also says, it hopes all things. Love's going to hope for the best in every situation, right? That God would be glorified, that sin would be forsaken, that sinners would be reconciled to fellowship, that they would be restored. If I can put it this way, love never gives up. Love never despairs. Love never stops praying for that wayward friend or loved one. Leon Morris put it this way, love is the confidence that looks to ultimate triumph by the grace of God. End quote. Aren't you glad that God never gave up on you? And he still doesn't give up on me and you? You know, I'm old enough to see the hand of God do powerful things as a result of years of prayer. And it's easy when you don't get the answer to just kind of finally throw up your hands and just forget about it. But love doesn't do that. And I have to say, because of of my sincere love for all of you, all of you are on my prayer list, every single one of you. But my most fervent prayers spring from the well of hope that I have that those of you who show no signs of genuine saving faith will be saved. I cannot bear the thought of knowing that you could sit in this church year after year and spend an eternity in hell. And yet I fear that could very well be the case for some of you. So, folks, we have to hope all things. We never give up. And then finally, he says, love endures all things. The Greek verb, hupomino, means to face or to withstand something with courage. In other words, love patiently bears or endures offenses. Even as a loving parent will graciously endure the the insults and the injuries and the disappointments, disappointments of a child. And every parent knows what that's like, some more than others. Some of you here today are hurting deeply, wounded deeply because of your children. But you don't want to give up hope, you want to continue to endure. Some of you are living with an unloving spouse pain that eats away at your body and your soul. Of course, every situation is different. You have to deal with them according to what's really going on and deal with it biblically. Sometimes you need to get help. But, folks, regardless of the force of the ridicule or the rejection, love stands fast. Love perseveres in hope for the sake of Christ and for the glory of God. It endures all things again I'm old enough now to look back and see how there have been great difficulties with a friend or a loved one and you think that it would never be reconciled and then to see after years of prayer how God brings conviction and there's great restoration and fellowship That's the great blessing of enduring. That's what love does. I want to close with something that John MacArthur said. It's such a perfect summary of this whole section on the virtues of love. He said this, quote, Love bears with what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures when anything less than love would give up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There is no, quote, after for endurance. For endurance is the unending climax of love. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise for your word and the power of your spirit to cause it to penetrate to the very core of who we are as your people. We thank you for your grace because were it not for your grace, we would all be so overwhelmed with guilt that we would feel defeated. But we thank you that because of your great love for us, you are patient, you are long-suffering, and you continue to sanctify us. And that is the prayer of our heart, that you would make us more like Christ in how we love one another. And for that person that does not know you as Savior, I pray that today will be the day that you will bring such overwhelming conviction that they will cry out for saving grace and experience the miracle of of the new birth. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.